Thank you. Let me encourage you to grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 4. Now we're, we're starting in here in, into a, a new chapter, and, and generally when I preach through a gospel, it, it's kind of a, a big deal when you get to the end of a chapter and the beginning of a new one, because it happens so seldomly that, uh, that it should be celebrated in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so maybe when we get to chapter 5, we'll, I don't know, we'll get some fireworks in here. Um, but uh, this, this opening section is a, is a section that's, that's known by many, uh, the, the, the Samaritan woman, the, the, the woman at the well. Let me just read through this uh, text together, and then we're going to dive into it. And today we're going to deal with, with part one of my anywhere from two to eight part series on the woman at the well. Uh, We'll see how this all works out, but uh, let's read through it together. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the the beauty and the wonder and the, the complexity and yet the simplicity of your word. I thank you for the power of your spirit to work in work in our hearts and to use your word to to reform our minds, and to continue to work on our hearts and our lives so that we better resemble our Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom as we seek to hear your word and understand it. And, Father, that we would be bold enough and willing enough to not simply listen to the word and, and then walk away, but that we would seek to allow it to transform our lives so that we would have more joy in our salvation, so that we would be more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Together we're going to step through uh, this text. And so I want to start and just dive in here looking at verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now, this is the last reference that we have of Jesus and his disciples in any kind of baptismal ministry. 
Um, he kind of leaves this behind. And I want to note a couple things that John Calvin wrote about this and, and, the, and the emphasis this laid in verse 2 about how Jesus did not do any of the baptisms, but his disciples did it for him. It's, John says this, He administered by the hands of others to teach us that baptism is not to be valued from the person of the minister, but that its whole force depends on its author, in whose name and by whose command it is administered. In other words, John is emphasizing that there's this this beautiful reality here that that in Jesus not baptizing, it is a reminder to us that when we go to be baptized, it should not be because of where it is or who's going to do it to us. But it should be done simply knowing that that in obedient, being obedient, I should say, to God, to Christ, the institutor of this baptism, that we are to do it trusting that He makes it sufficient. I sinned greatly in my uh, younger life. That's not very helpful. Specifically in relation to baptism. My, uh, my grandfather baptized my brother. And, uh, and my grandfather was a, was a, a pastor, uh, one of the kind of the patriarch of our family. And, uh, and he, he died shortly before he was able to baptize me. And because of sin in my own heart, I went another 10 years before getting baptized, even finishing my undergraduate degree in Bible. But I had a a thorn in my heart because I thought that baptism would be more valuable if who did it was a certain person that I valued. Baptism is to be done out of obedience to Christ, out of love for Him. And who does it and where it is done is far less important than the willingness to acknowledge the sovereignty of Christ and what he does. We are saved by, by grace through faith, not baptism. But we get baptized in obedience to Christ. And I love that, that Calvin makes this emphasis in, in that Jesus pulling, you know, explicitly removing himself from this baptism ministry, he, he echoes throughout the ages that what is important is being obedient to Christ, not making a show of it, not, not finding the perfect person to do it for you, not doing it in the Jordan River as opposed to, to whatever rivers are around here. I haven't learned that yet. Sheboygan River? Do we have a Sheboygan River? Sheboygan River. Do we have a Sheboygan River? All right, okay. All right, good. All right, it's new, yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah, we need to move on. So, verse 3, it says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, now, for those of you in particular who are, who are very missions-minded, as, as we all should be, um, this idea of, of going from Judea into Galilee is it's an important uh, point, especially when we look at the fact that he had to travel through uh, Samaria. When Jesus uh, comes back after his resurrection and speaks to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is starting here, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
There's this picture here, this emphasis just in, in what's mentioned that, that Jesus is going in this spread, in the movement of his gospel ministry. Look at verses 4 through 6. Uh, well, I guess I should mention. So here's Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, there's a territory. We, I guess technically we would call them states. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. So Jesus needs to get from here up to, well, about here, all right? And so if you can't see over there, there's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee is where Jesus is trying to get to. So he's trying to get up here. He's down here. Notice what it says in verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but, but if we go back here, he doesn't have to. Okay? Have to is not the point of the, of the text. Generally speaking, though, there was a tradition, a, a, a consistent pattern that Israelites followed through in avoiding Samaria. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But generally, people would go from Jerusalem, they would cross the Jordan River, and then move up, and then move into Galilee just to avoid Samaria. And to avoid the Samaritans, or Samarians, I should say. And so Jesus' path, as we'll see in a little bit, doesn't do this out-of-the-way uh, stretch, but instead goes straight through Samaria. And it's unclear whether, whether John is, is emphasizing that Jesus kind of felt obligated. In other words, that, I don't know, that, that, that there was a, a, a battle conflict going on in Perea that he didn't want to cross the Jordan to, to get into. Um, but either way... The emphasis seems to be that Jesus is, is saying that he had to go through Samaria because he had work to do. His father had a purpose for him to go through Samaria, and thus that is why he was going to go through it. And it is worth noting that um, for the, the roundabout way to avoid Samaria, usually it was done because Jewish people wanted to stay clean. They did not want to have any, any participation with. They did not want to, to touch or intermingle with or, or drink from the same cup from um, or, or be intimately involved in any way, shape, or form with people who were not Israelites, people who were not God's people. And there is a biblical command for them to be separate from the world in one sense. But notice that if they, if they travel around Samaria, then they're, they're traveling into the Gentile world. So either way, they're going to run into interaction or some contact with what, what they would call someone who's not a, a true Israelite or a person of God. But notice that the, the general pattern was that it's safer, it's better to travel farther and come in contact with people who are further removed from God's covenant than the Samaritans. So why this issue of Samaria? Let me, let me just walk us through it. When the northern kingdom, after Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, the larger kingdom, ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom. And when the, at around 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom. And at that point, the Assyrians did what they normally did, which is they would go into an area, and, and to be able to, to 
pacify the people so much so that they wouldn't have a revolt in the next generation or the generation after that. What they would do is they would take many of the, of the strong and the rich and they would deport them somewhere else. And they usually would take anywhere from a third to two-thirds of the population and they would spread them out over their empire. In a sense, kind of forcing them to intermingle with other cultures and other peoples. And then, with the people that were left there, they would send other refugees into that community so that the city was still flourishing, they could still charge taxes. But now, these two very different cultures are going to come to a point where, where if they want to continue to grow, they need to intermarry, they need to intermingle, they need to, to, to associate and to live together. This was not some peace effort, by the way, of the Assyrians. It was a way of, of demeaning the people and, and, and kind of separating out, separating out their nationalistic pride so that they would not revolt in the future and seek to overthrow the Assyrians. And so what happened here is that you have the interminglings of these, these Jewish people who, who would have been some of the weakest, who were left behind, and then they get kind of enveloped by this new group of refugees that are brought in by the Syrians. And so this is a very tough situation for anybody who is left there. But the Sumerians that we're talking about today, they come from, they are the children of, the grandchildren of, the great-grandchildren of this group of Israelites who were left and then in some way, shape, or form, forced to intermarry. And part of what we see with that happening is that as they intermarried and as they joined their families together, what they would do is they would join their worship together. It was the big sin with Solomon. It's all of his wives. But, but that wasn't even the huge issue. The huge issue was that then he began to worship their gods. And it's the same issue that the Assyrians are trying to get here. They're trying to, to, to kind of demean the idea of, of total dependency upon just your nation's God or gods. Instead, it's to, to broaden the perspective so that there's more hope in their mind for peace. So, in light of this, the, the dislike for the Samaritans was heavy. These are the people who either volunteered to stay or were forced to stay, and then in their staying, chose to, in some way, shape, or form, to intermingle, to do business with, to, 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 to allow their kids to marry into these, these other people who were basically invaders into their land. And so you can imagine if you were a refugee who was sent out to, to Persia, and then you, you stay with your family and you stay intact. And then finally, when, when Nehemiah and, and Ezra bring back the people of God, you come back and now you find you're, you're no longer an Israelite. You've, you've abandoned your culture. You've abandoned the call of God to be pure. You've, you've abandoned our, our rituals and our, and our practices and the worship of our one true God because you've joined yourself with this other and now you worship their gods too and you dress kind of like us, kind of like them. You have rules that are kind of ours and kind of theirs that you've merged together. And so there was this real hatred that developed between the two groups of people. So much so that the Pharisees had a common prayer that they would pray in the synagogues in Israel, which was simply put that they would pray that no Samaritan would ever 
be raised in the resurrection. This was, this was not a passive dislike, okay? This was a serious hatred, especially coming from what we would say the religious top down, because these are the people who think, I, I got to make myself pure, I got to earn God's love. And so anything that's, that misses that bar could potentially make me miss the bar worse, and so I don't want to be around it. The Samaritans, in response to their, the rejection by Israel, developed their own kind of policies and their own, <coughs> their own culture. They decided to take from the, the Word of God and eliminate things like the, like the Psalms and uh, many of the writings from the, <coughs> excuse me, the prophets. Instead, they held to the first five books. It was called the, the Samaritan Pentateuch. They took the same five books with a few corrections that they had, and they would use those texts and those primarily alone. They rejected anything that spoke about Jerusalem or the, the, the temple or the place of worship, and instead their new capital became the city of Samaria, and their new point of worship, the place where they were to worship God, became Mount Gerizim. So, so you see that, 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 that there's this completely different culture in the middle of Israel. And true Israelites want to avoid, we would say, contamination. I should say they would say contamination with the others in the middle. Then in verse 5 it says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, this was a special piece of land that Jacob, or eventually Israel, had purchased and given as an inheritance to his son Joseph. And it's on this land where Joseph's bones are said to be buried when Israel brought his bones up out of Egypt and they finally came into the promised land. It's on, it's on this property where Joseph's bones are buried. And then it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, there's nothing in Old Testament Scripture that affirms Jacob building this well, but it was the cultural uh, understanding or belief, and it was not one that was challenged by either the Samaritans or the Israelites on either side of the, of the wall, we would say. Um, but it's been almost 2,000 years since this well has been dug, most likely by Jacob. And here it is still providing water at the time of Jesus. This well is really important to our story, but also to the nation of Samaria. Samaria had no major rivers to supply water to the region. Only natural drainage uh, channels, which would bring some water during the rainy seasons, but then would dry up for months at a time. So wells were a very important part of the survival of Samaria. Notice that it says, Jesus, tired as he was. Now, some people really struggle with that idea, Jesus being tired. And sometimes we don't struggle with it, but yet later we will. You know, people, people will say, well, Jesus prayed all night long, and, and then we'll make the excuse, well, yeah, but he's Jesus. We'll remove his humanity when he does something that, that, that we are called to do because we don't want to do it, or we don't think we have it in us to do it, but at other times, we'll allow him to have his humanity, and we can't pick and choose. 
Jesus in the incarnation took on flesh and became one of us so that he could stand in for us. He was fully God and fully man. And to minimize either is a mistake. He did not endure the, the, the personal torments of the fall because he did not sin. But still, in this fallen world, he was fully human. He got tired, weak, hungry, and thirsty just as we do. Listen to what Hebrews 4.15 says about Jesus, our high priest. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Friends, there is great love there. Jesus came here, took on our flesh, our limitations, so that he could stand in for us. So that he could be tempted in every way, just as we are. So that we would have not only one who could stand in for us, but one who could empathize with us. There is great love here. But notice, not only in Jesus' humility, his love is, is seen for sinners. Notice also that when he, he was literally exhausted... He still reached out to someone else in love. His being here as an expression of love was not sufficient for him. He lived out his love even when it hurt, even when he would rather rest. Remember Jesus on the cross, dying for your sins and mine, and yet speaking with every bit of pain that it caused in leading one more to the kingdom, the criminal on the cross. Jesus willingly, when he was weak and tired and hungry and thirsty and dying, still loved well, still served God faithfully. And this is the type of love that we have in Christ. And this is the type of love for others that we should mimic. Let's get back to our text. It was about noon, verse uh, 6 ends with. Now, generally speaking, we assume that the, that the, the description here is speaking of, of an Israelite's notion of time, which would have been uh, primarily you determine a day by sunrise to sunset. And so sunrise is generally around 6 o'clock, give or take an hour. Uh, and so six hours from that, you have noon. This is the time when it would have been the hottest part of the day. Look now at verses 7 and 8. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Here we're told something amazing. In chapter 3, we had Jesus having a private interaction with one of the religious elites, with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. But here we have the start of his interaction, which was initiated by him, not her, by the way. But this time it was not with an elite, but with the very opposite. This is what we know about this woman that we can consider in this narrative. First off, she was a woman. 
Nicodemus was a man. That held a great deal of weight in this culture as it related to who you could talk to and what you could talk about. We know that she was alone. Usually women went to the well in groups, both to socialize as well as to carry the load together. But this woman came alone. We also know that she was either very unwise or she had been shamed. The drawing of water was a vital part of life. The the water needed for drinking and bathing and cleaning of clothes and other things. And usually water was only gathered once during the day. And generally that water was gathered in the cool of the morning. Rather than in the heat of the day. Why would she do this? Why would she come at noon to gather water? Well, we're not told for sure. But one of the likely reasons is that she was a woman without honor, and thus she was a woman who had been treated very poorly, not only from Israelites, but also from her fellow countrymen. She had been shamed. And we know from later in the account that she was immoral, that she had multiple husbands, and that the person that she was currently living with was not even her husband. She was an overt sinner. And when you compare this meeting with the one with Nicodemus, you have some stark differences. Nicodemus is one of the elites. He's one of the ones that everyone would look at and say, purity. He was in an honored position, both by his family lineage and even just his gender at the time. And she is the opposite side of that coin. But yet, Here's Jesus, not afraid to speak to or even be served by this person to those in Jerusalem who would would not be worthy of love or dignity or honor. But to this woman, Jesus simply says, will you give me a drink? Now, usually people would have carried with them a a, a container of water, which is why it's possible that that here is why John, our our narrator, adds in the reference that his disciples were in the town looking for food. And that would have been a difficult thing in Samaria because they would have had to find kosher food, food that they could eat according to their laws that hadn't been contaminated by where it was. But most likely they took the water jugs with them, possibly to fill them. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Her response to this question shows that she has been hurt before. Hospitality was a very important part of this culture, and still is today. Any other woman in Israel, when asked by a rabbi, whether Samaritan or not, for a drink, would gladly get it at whatever expense. But this woman, she's not playing around. And maybe she's gotten water for another Israelite who asked her for it just to have him throw it in her face or pour it out on the ground. Maybe she has been so mocked by Israelites that she just has a cold heart of hatred toward them. Or maybe she's trying to follow the lead of her people in resenting Israelites. Maybe she's just just trying to join with with everybody else whom she feels isolated from. (coughs) She knew that there was supposed to be a distinction in her heart 
that there should be a, a distinction, a separation between the two. And she was fine with it. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Now, some people get a little lost in this text and trying to figure out exactly what's being emphasized. And I, and I want to make sure that we, that we catch it in a way that, that helps us to, to understand it in full. So I want to pick it apart a little bit. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. So here we need to, we need to pull these things apart and say, okay, well, what is the gift of God and, and, and what is he saying about himself? And to do this, I, I just want to go to a text that most of you are familiar with, John, or sorry, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift that God offers is forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. And the person to whom she is speaking is the means of that salvation. The one who God has determined will be the giver of that gift to mankind. Remember what we discussed in John chapter 3 when he who, who receives the Son has life and he who rejects the Son has, has no life. In other words, it's all going to be determined with your interaction with the Son. Or if you don't, don't like me going to a New Testament text that she would have had no concept about, let's go to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we have this, this beautiful picture of the suffering servant that's going to come and, and going to provide for Israel salvation and hope. And in verses 3 through 5, it says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whose people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took up our, our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. What is the gift of God? Healing for our souls. The relief from punishment from our sins. The crushing and the, and the piercing that we deserved would not fall upon us. He took up our pain and our punishment so that we could have peace. This is the gift of God. And how is God going to give that gift to people? Through a mediator. Through one who would stand who would willingly be persecuted and be abandoned. He would be, he would be mocked. He would bear our pain and our suffering even though he did not deserve it. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And what, what was needed for us to have peace, he endured on our behalf. This is the gift of God. Not a gift that is, that is unknown even to the Samaritans. And even in the Pentateuch. 
This is the gift of God, salvation. And there was always to be a mediator, one who would offer this gift, bear this gift, ensure this gift to those who believe. Jesus, in other words, says, if you would have known the offer of salvation that God was bringing and the means by which he was going to bring it to you, you would have asked me for something. You would have sought me out. And then he says, you have asked me and, or you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. Now notice that there's only one thing being said here, but it is stressed in an illustration or a symbol in two distinct ways. What would you have asked for? Well, the, the gift of God, right? That's, that's, what, that's the line of thought. If you knew the gift of God, so if you knew that gift of God, you would have gone to this one who had it and you would have asked for it, right? So you would have asked for the gift of God, or to put it another way, you would have asked for living water. So living water is a, is a parallel with salvation, with the gift of God. Now, water is an important um, theme in the Old Testament. The Psalms speak of water as a symbol of, of spiritual vibrancy and stability. And in Jeremiah, we're reminded that this spiritual symbol of water comes from God and God alone. Turn with me to Psalm 36. <coughs> in Psalm 36, <coughs> we have one of these illustrations. Look at verses 7 through 9 in Psalm 36. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The term living water is just another way of saying something that, that, that's not stagnant. In other words, the Greek word that's used here emphasizes water that is moving, that is flowing, and that is growing. So in other words, the, the, the picture here of asking for living water is, is asking for something that doesn't grow stale. It doesn't sit around. It is always bubbling up. It is always moving. It is always growing. I love this. I love it because Jesus uses water as a symbol for the gospel to the very woman who refused to give him water. Is there not such great, great love there? Is there not such great love for a Messiah willingly to come and not just come to those who see him and not just come to those of us who are good or, or those of us who are powerful or those of us who are men or those of us who are whatever it may be, but to come to all people, the Nicodemuses and the Samaritan woman, and to come and even if we reject him, even if we are ignorant of him, he opens our eyes to see the truth. And he gives us love and grace and compassion that continues to flow over and over again. That abundantly bubbles up in our hearts and in our souls. 
Let's jump through this pretty quickly. Look at verses 11 and 12. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Now, here this woman gets into a very important point that's stressed throughout this book. The point of source. She wants to know where this water comes from and where this man is going to get it. Like, where is this water and why do you have access to it? And then she emphasizes the reality of, of, of kind of challenging the goodness of this water that he's saying that she should be asking him for. Because again, she's sitting in kind of an authority over him. She's saying, wait, you want me to do something for you? Aren't you the great Israelites? And you say you have good water? And this well came from Jacob, the patriarch. It's deep. It's been here for over 2,000 years. Basically, she's asking Jesus, are you, are you saying you're better than Jacob? And are you saying that your provision is better than his? His that has lasted this community for 2,000 years? By the way, the well is still still bubbling up, so over 4,000 years now. Can you really provide more than him? Verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Jesus first makes it clear that both the provider of this well and the well itself is lacking. For this well cannot provide eternally. Notice that she missed the symbolism, just like Nicodemus had missed the symbolism. So Jesus makes it clear to her in verse 14, But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now understand, again, we've moved back to this this symbol, this metaphor. Right? I don't don't know how many of you are, are... Christians, for sure. I, I know that, or I have confidence that my wife and, and, and everyone who went to Guatemala was a believer. But yet, the people in Guatemala, uh, apparently it's been upper 90s all week. And uh, they've been hiking around and doing manual labor all week. But they got thirsty. They needed more to drink. They needed more to, to replenish their bodies. They needed to be able to replace the body that or the water that they were sweating out. So does that mean that we have a contradiction here? No. Only if we're hyper-literalists, which means we make the Bible say what our translations have made it say and how we define terms today, rather than how the author used the words to communicate. In other words, he's using a metaphor So the picture is not here. Jesus is not just talking about drinking literal H2O. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about the gift of God. He's talking about eternal life. And Jesus deals both with the supremacy of himself over Jacob and the superiority of his provision over Jacob's. The water that Jacob has given them cannot eternally quench thirst. And this living water that Jesus can give can. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this. 
He said, when Jesus spoke of this water springing up, he used a word that literally means leaping up. The picture he painted was of water so alive, so dynamic, so energetic and powerful that it not only would assuage the thirst for a moment, it would begin to pour up out of the soul of the person and continue to nurture him day by day, year after year. Jesus was using the element of water as a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality, something that would meet not just the need of the moment, but the need for all eternity. Next week, we're going to dive into this woman's question of, well, how do I get this water? If it's so good, how do I get it? But before we do, we need to finish today. John Calvin wrote, The water of God through Jesus does not cease to flow until the incorruptible life that commemorates is completely perfected. What water are you resting in? What is your sufficiency? What confidence do you have that you will see the kingdom of God? That you have eternal life? Because if it is not through Jesus and through his means, then you do not have it. And if you do have it, if you have believed upon Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you are a believer, then stop doubting that God's going to provide what you need to endure till the end. Be confident today in knowing that he will provide the grace that you need to be obedient, to have joy even in the midst of trials, to forgive, to love, to serve, to give, Trust that God is bigger, that his grace is bigger than your worst fault. Trust that God's word is true when he says in Philippians 1.6 that I began a good work in you and I will see it to completion. Trust that the sufficiency of his salvation is new every morning so that you are never lacking from God what you need, no matter the day, or the hour, or the trial. Trust in the giver and the gift of God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the goodness of who you are and what you've given us. I ask, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom as we seek to know you and love you more faithfully in our lives. And I pray that you would help us now as we sing again and as we contemplate the wonder of the gift of God and also as we celebrate communion together. I pray that you would be glorified in all we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.